Hey there, welcome to Board Game Pot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today, instead of giving the hot take review of a game we just finished playing, we're going to talk about some controversial board game mechanisms. What does that mean? Well, we'll tell you that in a few minutes. Before we jump into that, I got a little bit of news. The day after this episode releases, I'm going to be talking with Royce on the podcast called Definitely a Board Game Podcast. So there's no mistake there. Um, And that episode is going to release on Tuesday the 19th. So that's the day after this releases. So he's got a really great show format there. A lot of fun conversation about board games. I'm really excited to have it. In fact, the topic we're going to be talking about is whether old games are definitively better than newer games. And I have some beef with that. I don't 100% agree on that concept. Excited about that conversation. By the time you hear this, the episode may already be out. If not, it'll be out tomorrow. Looking forward to that. Hopefully you tune in and take a listen to that episode. Otherwise, we do have some poll results to talk about before we get into our main topic today. And the poll is kind of on the nose today because I said that the next episode record will cover our controversial board game mechanisms. Controversial because one or more of us really dislike these mechanisms, but they seem to be generally well-liked and heavily used. So I don't know if controversial is the right term here, but that's what I'm going to call it. That's what we're going to call this episode. And so I asked people on Twitter, are there any heavily used mechanisms that you hate? And I gave three options. Number one was yes. Number two, hate is a strong word. And number three is no. When I said hate is a strong word, I intended it to mean there are some mechanisms I don't like. But then I got some responses that told me that maybe people really don't like the word hate. But um, how did you guys answer this poll before I get into some some of the things that people posted on Twitter about this? Well, I said yes, but I also, I mean, I get the whole thing about the word hate, but I think we're all, we all appreciate that we're using it here in kind of the, you know, the fun sense. We don't mean hate like hatred, like anybody wants to do harm, but more like, you know, really tired of or really don't enjoy or just are sick and tired of games that have X. It's like IPAs sick to death of IPAs. They're everywhere. Everybody loves them. Why? Who knows? But people love them and I hate them. So yeah, including you. You shut your mouth, Chris. I don't want to hear that blasphemy from your mouth. There's there's a hot take. There's a hot take. <laughs> Ads comparison, Chris. Uh, I was talking with Sarah about this topic the other day. IPAs are for the people who want to be the wine snobs of beer. Yes, I drink a fine IPA. I love the hops of the Pacific Northwest. You can taste the the flavors of beard coming through. It's yeah, it's but it, it's now like the Merlot of beers, guys. But there's also the possibility that some people, myself included, actually just like IPAs because nothing else has any flavor comparatively. That's not that's not actually a possibility. And I think that's true of game mechanisms as well. Shifting back to topic here, that you know there are some things that you guys might feel are overused. Well, I might still really enjoy it. I might love that mechanism, and and this is kind of true. Everybody doesn't have the same tastes. Um, but what we're going to be talking about tonight are some mechanisms that really don't work well for us, even if they work well for other people. And and we don't even all agree on this. So it'll be an interesting conversation. Now, some of the well, actually, Adam, I'm sorry, I didn't even let you answer. Well, how did you answer this poll? Oh yeah, I put hate as a strong word. I get what you're saying. I know when you use that word. You- like Chris said, you're tired of it, or it's it's getting old. There's no mechanism that I'm like, there's some that I'm concerned about and that worry me, so I like to see games that turn those around and turn them into something that's enjoyable or a new twist on them that add a new a new flavor to them, a little bit of salt on something that's that's tired and old. So that was my take on it. Cool. I'll just read a couple of responses here. I'm not going to go too deep here because I don't want to get too much into a conversation about something we're going to be talking about in just a minute, but just so that you can hear some of our uh, listeners' responses. Brian McInnes said, I strongly dislike real-time games. Played Sorcerer City once, never again, never. Real-time betrays everything I love about puzzling through a heavy, crunchy Euro. I've, Brian and I, I think have a lot of the same tastes. We, we, we chat a bit on Twitter, and um, he's really into, into heavier Euros. I love the games that he's playing that he's got on his table. And I, I pretty much agree with him. Like, you know, there's other reasons to not like a, a real-time game. Yeah, I agree. Not, not my thing. Jeff Milton said, I hate any dexterity games, anything I need to react to quickly. If time's part of the mechanic, I hate it. You couldn't convince me to pay Pendulum unless you paid me. Okay, we got some similar uh, ideas going on here. Brian Chandler said, maybe not a generally well-liked mechanism. I dislike real-time games. He added some more stuff here, which I think is all valid. Let's jump into something that is not related to real-time. David, Eclectic Camel, 
I think he's just stirring up dust here, said, I'm not a fan of polyamino games, but especially when games use it as a side mechanism, I'm looking at you, a feast for Odin. I don't hate them, but I feel like I, I don't feel like that adds to my experience. It feels gimmicky, to put it nicely. Wow, spreading some hate for a feast for Odin going on over here. And then, ooh, here's another good one. Board Game Chatterbox said, I don't like drafting. Everyone loves it, but I just think it's boring. Wow, that's that's too sad. I like drafting a lot, so. Big talk. Here's where somebody just didn't like the word hate. So Mike Siggins, who's a reviewer, and uh, he likes to pick fights with me on Twitter, but he said, I think you're way off base here. And I said, off base on the topic or the terminology. <laughs> so the topic's great, but it's not hate. If it is, someone has a personality <laughs> issue. I guess I have a personality issue. I, I say all the time, oh man, I hated that mechanism. I hated that game. It's not that big of a deal to me. Like It's just kind of a, a, you know, a way to strongly state that I'm not a big fan of it. When I responded back and said that I just didn't think it was any different than strongly dislike, he said he thought that night was just a first world problem. Yep, everything that we talk about with board games is first world related, so fits right in there. And then uh, Board Game Sire said deck building. <laughs> oh, poor Brad. Who hurt you, Board Game Sire? <laughs> was it Dominion? So let's jump into uh, talk about some of the games that we are not big fans of here. Maybe we hate them. Maybe hate's a strong word. What we're going to do is each of us is going to talk through a mechanism that we find controversial, that we really don't like, even though it seems to be generally well-loved or it's heavily used a lot. We'll mention a couple specific games that didn't hit for us. And I, you know, I have a couple subtopics to talk about here. So I'm excited to jump into this topic. So let me kick us off with my number one least favorite mechanism. And I, I'm kind of going in reverse order here because this really is my least favorite mechanism of this list here. And that is negotiation. I really don't like playing games with negotiation. I've got a, there's a couple reasons why, and, and I'm going to use a couple games to reference them. So my first game as a reference is a game called Chinatown. Now Chinatown is almost entirely negotiation. Like that's what the game is. It, it's been several years since I played it, but if I remember right, essentially everybody draws some random tiles out of a bag. You are trying to build up a city, build up these little shops in, a, in, in Chinatown, and you're going to get points by having connected tiles like having multiple in the same block or you know in the same building and the only way you can do that if you don't randomly draw them out of the bag is negotiate with other players and say hey i'll give you this aquarium that that goes on spot 73 if you'll give me the thai food restaurant that goes on spot 12 well i would assume it'd be a chinese food restaurant on, on spot 12 in chinatown it, that's all you're doing you're basically just saying this is what i'll give you you give me this right i had the worst experience with this game i sat down with a few new players it was a, at a board game meetup two of the guys knew each other nobody had played this game before it was all introduced to everybody but two of the guys knew each other and we started the game out immediately the two guys knew each other started making even trades for each other like i'll give you this if you give me this cool and i would say like hey i'll give you that building that you need if you'll give me the building i need and he's like no i'll give it to you for two buildings if you give me two buildings i need or if you give me a building in five coins and i was like well that doesn't make any sense why would I always give you the, the more generous trade? Well, he didn't need to negotiate with me because he had his partner there that was willing to do those trades. So they immediately had a leg up. And that's what a negotiation can lead to. And I'll talk about some other examples, but that's the most pure example and the type of game that I absolutely do not enjoy at all. Well, this is one, Tim, where if you hadn't put this on your list, I definitely would have had it on my list because I'm with you a thousand percent on this. One of the things I like about board games is it takes some of that human element out of it. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say, but I want to have a rule set. I want to have a thing that tells me if you do this, then you can do this. I don't want to have to negotiate with somebody to do something. I just think that sounds incredibly unfun. And so I, I sympathize with you. I, it, it's one of the reasons why I'm not interested in role-playing games. It's the same thing. I don't want to have to rely on other people's you know interpretation of things or you know just this random formless stuff to make things happen. I want rules, 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 rules. Well, I'm going to diverge from your guys' thoughts here a little bit. Tim, the experience that you had sounds absolutely miserable. I would never want to partake in something like that. It sounds horrible. But one of my earliest memories in board games is playing Monopoly with the family around Christmas time. So right, everybody goes around the board a couple of times. You got two out of the three properties in need, then it's time to start 
wheeling and dealing is what my dad would always say. And that was just so fun to me. So I think it was probably because I could always con my mom out of giving me like New York and I would give her Connecticut and Baltic. And then it'd be down to between my me and my dad and who's going to win. And those are just some nice experiences there just in general. The negotiation aspect is very group dependent. If you're hanging out with some strangers, I, I'm i not going to want to do negotiation with them, especially if there's like a couple people that already know each other, going to hook each other up. But if you're with the right group, I think something like sidereal confluence could be really fun. It's something I'd be interested in trying just to see what it's like. I heard good things. For Chinatown, same thing. With the right group of people, I feel like it could be lots of fun. But yeah, I, I could see your wariness, your hesitancy about negotiation just because it can go awry so quickly and provide such a miserable experience. There is no good group. There is no right group for this. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about two more quick games. One I'll just mention really briefly, and that is Catan. Now, Catan isn't quite like Chinatown in that the whole game isn't negotiation, right? A lot of that game is just you roll dice, you get the resource that you're on, but you have the option to trade. And so you can kind of make those same deals. And the reason why it still doesn't work here for me is that I found that you know, players tend to metagame it. It's like, oh yeah, no, we're not going to trade with Tim because he's got a point ahead of us or because he won the last game. So let's not play that. And I just don't, just like Chris was saying, I don't like adding that human element into what is otherwise a mechanical game. Now, here's an area where I'm a little bit more mixed on, and that's that has to do with area control or, you know, really th- this can fall into any game, but I think this happens a lot with area control type games. And I'm going to use Inish as a reference. You've got people jockeying for positions, moving around, and Inish is a really great example because somebody wins the game by basically meeting a couple specific objectives. And so sometimes the only way that you can stop them is people kind of have to, hey, you know, Chris is about to win that if you don't go over there and take that spot away from him or move some characters in there so that you've got the majority in there, he's going to win that. And so there has to be a little bit of that conversation. And I, you know, I don't mind table talk. I like it more in some other games, but you still can have those metagaming issues where, okay, I could go after Chris or I could go after, go after Steve, but oh, Adam and Steve, they always form an alliance, like Eclipse, right? They always form an alliance. So I know that I'll never have a leg up in a negotiation with Adam and Steve because Adam's always going to pick Steve over Tim in that situation. And that, you know, that's just frustrating. It kind of takes away the game. It like makes it less competitive and less about what each of us are doing individually. And maybe the reality is that I'm just not great at these. Like, uh, you know, I don't think I have a great, you know, poker face. I'm not willing to, I don't know. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not good at it. So it just makes it like, I feel like I've automatically got a disadvantage playing games with, with negotiation. Well, you bring up Eclipse, Tim, and Man, you nailed it. If you weren't always in the lead by around four and five, you you always surge ahead. Like literally, there's we pretty much have to form an alliance to like drag you down because you do. You surge out to that early lead or get all these points. And then the rest of us are like, well, we got to do something. So Tim doesn't <laughs> kick the crap out of us. And uh, if we could have done it tonight playing Dune Imperium, I'm sure we would have done the same thing. But there wasn't any way to prevent it. So a lot of it has to do with the way you play the game and approach the game. And Steve and I are just mediocre players, and I think we both recognize that. We're like, dude, you want to you wanna slum it up together here in outer space and try to make some things happen? <laughs> and it works for us. So my number three, I'm going to do the opposite of Tim, and I'm going to go from number three to number one. With the way we normally do with lists, which would make perfect sense. Kind of, yeah. I'm going to do that. So <laughs> my third least favorite mechanism is trick-taking. And just as a little description of what we're talking about here, essentially trick-taking is a mechanism in which players throw down cards in a series of rounds with each round or trick evaluated to determine the effects of the cards and whatever results from the cards that are played. And often players are required to play cards in suit. So for example, you might have a game where high card in the suit gets some benefit. And that's trick-taking. So there's a number of games that have this this particular... Um, there's, a number, there's a number of games that have this mechanism in them. Some of the more well-known ones are The Crew, Skull King, Brian Baru. Actually, probably the best known of all time is the old classic uh, Bridge. And one that I throw out there as kind of a variation on it that I, I'm not sure if this is a trick-taking game, but it sure feels in some ways like a trick-taking game to me, Libertalia. But this is a mechanism that I just find so incredibly boring. 
And I have to confess, I have a significant dislike of traditional card games. I've never found them fun. It sounds almost sacrilegious for someone who plays board games, but just straight card games, just never liked them. I, I, they bore me to tears. And trick-taking games are probably the closest thing that I can think of in hobby board gaming to those traditional card games. So there's that. And then there's the fact that it gives the player interaction a significant influence on the moves that I can make, which is what we were just talking about a second ago. Like, I don't want to have to rely on somebody else to do something or to not do something in order to do what I want to do. I want to be able to just do it. And that, that introduces that element. And it's funny because as I'm talking through this, I'm hearing myself become more and more or sound more and more like a um, you know, single player solitaire. But there's, there's, <laughs> there's definitely a place for interaction. I love interaction. You guys know that. But with this kind of the trick taking is just not the way that I want to get the interaction. It, get, you know, it means I had to get into the head of my opponent in a way that I just don't really find enjoyable, similar to negotiation. So it's just one that I find oppressive and unfun and just a bit of a bummer yeah, trick taking is another one i can be a little bit leery of but one game that does it right i think is the classic spades i don't know if you played that one chris you were in the military when i was in the military deployed we got the deck of cards it's simple you get your hand of cards there's four of you around the table you're partnered with a guy across from you the first part of that game is you make this little bid how many tricks are you going to be able to take so there's a little auction element. So I love it. You're you're looking at your hand of cards. I got three aces and some high sp and some high spades. I think I can take five cards. What about you? So then you go through. You work as a team. I like that teamwork aspect of it. And then oh, you made your bid. Now you're trying to slough cards. You're just trying to get rid of all your cards. So there's excitement. You got what you needed, and then you shift. And it's pure trick taking. None of this fluff that's associated none of this brian beru kind of stuff oh you didn't get the trick so you get this bottom stuff and there's top stuff you did get the trick and you have to worry about this and that so the simplicity of a pure trick taking game like spades i really really love i think it does it right but you're right chris some of these trick taking games can be kind of a turn off lead to sour taste if they try to do too much with it it's something i think you have to be careful with as a designer well you know let me just say there adam i have played spades and like you as the military and i totally get what you're talking about and hearing you talk about spades makes me want to throw myself off a cliff <laughs> it just that to me sounds so incredibly like the opposite of anything i ever want to do in a gaming environment that I just z zero interest. And actually, you, you mentioned Brian Baru as well. And I did want to throw out a couple of examples of situations where I think trick-taking can be part of a reasonably good game. And Brian Baru is one of those. And I think the reason for that, at least for me, is that it's a relatively small part of the game. That it, it essentially... It's how you start your turn, but then you start doing all these other various things that arise from that, like how you put influence out and you go up various tracks... And so there's a lot of things that are happening, including some area control. It's led off by the trick-taking, but the trick-taking is not the whole game. Another one that's actually pretty good where the trick-taking is more of a significant part of the game is Shamans. And honestly, on that one, I couldn't tell you why I like that one so much. I don't know if it has to do with the theme or that it's a super light game or that it's, honestly, I think Shamans, one of the big things I like about that is the fact that it is such a fun-themed game with trick-taking that I can bust it out with almost anybody. It's one of my go-to games now for playing with non-gamers or people who've never, you know, people who are playing a, a copy game for the first time, and I think it's great for that. But that's a game where I think it's done well, for whatever reason, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it can be done well. You can use trick-taking effectively in a way that I enjoy. It's just not real easy. I think Shamans is great. I love that game. And it does have some trick-taking, but it's not. It, it still loses some of that pure essence of trick-taking that I like. So like Euchre, for instance, is another one where there's a trump suit. And you're going to have these junk cards. There's something about Shamans that it doesn't quite capture that fantastic trick-taking feeling that I like, and I can see why you wouldn't like it, too. It's just a mixed bag of the way the trick-taking is used and the variations on it. I think it's pretty neat the way it's expressed in different games. I have never played a trick-taking game I didn't love. One of the things you said, Chris, which was really interesting to me, was you mentioned Libertalia as a trick-taking game. And now that you said that, I can't 
unsee it. And, and I, there's no reason not to qualify it as a trick-taking game. I never thought of it that way. But you're absolutely right, right? Like everybody's just playing a card out of their hand and whoever plays the highest wins the trick. But there's some little side mechanisms going on there. And I love that too. I love trick-taking. So, you know, but I can understand it's a pretty abstract mechanism. I find it really fun when you can sit down with somebody for a couple hours and just play through dozens of tricks and start to get into this rhythm where you can read what cards are coming up and and you can start to actually trick them about, I'm going to let them have this trick so that way I save this big card so I get the next trick. We, we play a lot of hearts around here. And hearts is a game where you actually don't want to win tricks. Every heart is worth a negative one point, but also the queen of spades is negative 13 points. And that's a game where you're just trying to set yourself up to make sure you don't get stuck with the queen of spades. And it's such a big event whenever it happens. Someone's like, oh no, I got this, the queen of spades. Super fun game. So this is one that I cannot agree with you at all. But also, you know, I can understand it. You touched on something, Tim, that is my absolute favorite about some of these trick-taking games, spades, hearts, euchre, is you can just play them over and over and over. And you get this rhythm of back and forth. And if there's a partnership aspect involved, you and your partner are just going and, and you're when you find that groove, you know, like, oh, I know my partner. That was a perfect play. Heck yeah, nice job. So yeah, some of these trick-taking games just get me pumped. There was one that we uh, used to play, which was just with a basic set of cards called Oh Hell. And I know there's a lot of variations on this. I think there's even maybe some some package card games that do this, where you basically have to, you look at your hand of card, thir- you know, 13 cards or whatever, and then you bid on how many tricks you're going to win that round. So based on the quality, and then you have to try to play to that. And it's so fun. My wife hates that game so much because it's just so hard to meet that but it's so fun to do that and the crew is another great one too where you're you're playing cooperatively but you can't talk so you're trying to meet these specific objectives about who wins the trick without telling anyone else what cards you have in your hand Ah, oh, that's a that's a blast too oh man i, I want to play more trick taking games i love that i think i dozed off like seven minutes ago <laughs> oh, okay uh, are we on to the next one yet my first mechanisms i'm a little leery of is deck milling. What do I mean by that? I mean games like Terraforming Mars or Ark Nova that have this giant stack of cards. Maybe not necessarily giant, but in those cases, a giant stack of cards. And you're going through trying to find the one or two or three right cards that'll help your your tableau, help your hand of cards, help whatever you're trying to do. And you know it might just be one or two cards that you're looking for. Maybe you'll never see them the whole entire game because it's somewhere buried... 300 cards down in this giant deck and you're never going to get to see it and you spent three hours trying to build a zoo and it was not worth anything so games like that can be a little bit frustrating for me now if you slam that deck down if you do something like imperium the contention where maybe you have 40 to 50 cards android net runner and all the cards are awesome and good and do something well imperium the contention once you get started you can take a mulligan at least in the solo i think it's like that in cooperative play too you can take a mulligan and get a different hand of starting cards so you can get something that gets your engine going or makes it so you're not going to get slaughtered right away so i appreciate when the game isn't just about going through this giant wad of cards and trying to find the one or two or three cards that combo together and it worries it so i'm a little bit leery when i see a game like this now terraforming mars i love that game but that's because I'm so familiar with it. I know what cards are in there. I know what cards combo together. But I didn't get there until like 50 plays into it. Once I see what cards I have, I'm like, oh, all right. I know that these cards work together. I'm going to go for this strategy. I'm not going to worry about the uh, the Jupiter strategy and try to find all these Jovian cards and make those tags work together. So deck milling makes me a little bit worried when I see a game has that mechanism. I'm going to fix this for you, Adam. So... Here's how you need to treat these games. Don't look at your hand of cards and decide the strategy you're going to go on. You have to play tactically with them. And I enjoy that. If you don't, then that makes sense that you wouldn't like it. But you can't play to that strategy and count on getting those cards. And I think the games are made to do that. The Everdell gets this complaint all the time. My wife likes Everdell, but she gets really frustrated by the fact that with Everdell, if you get a construction card, you can play a critter that matches it for free. And so oftentimes she would start with a hand of cards and she'd be like, oh, cool, I've got the palace. So as soon as I draw the queen, I'm golden. And she'd work up all these resources, build the palace, and then she'd never draw the queen. And she'd get so frustrated by that. But the way you have to play Everdell is say like, hey, it's cool. I've got the palace. I'll, I'll hang it into my hand and maybe at some point I'll play it for its own benefit. But if I get lucky and draw the queen, awesome. Instead, I'm going to go after this other thing that doesn't seem as valuable, but it feels like it's going to get my engine moving a little bit quicker. And Arc Nova is the same. Terraforming Mars is the same. 
wingspan is the same. You you can't focus on just trying to like hit one specific objective. And to me, that's really fun. I like the fact that there's a huge variety in there. And the, the fun of it is trying to put together the puzzle with what comes up, even if it doesn't feel like the optimal fit. I like it. That's fine. This is another one where, where my wife really gets frustrated on like on all of these games. If I know there's a big stack of cards, I won't even introduce it to her because I know she's just going to be disappointed that she doesn't hit what she's trying to do. But holy cow, do I, I have fun digging through that deck. And when you hit that, well, you hit that Jovian tag that you were hoping to get, or you hit that, you know, whatever it is, the, the critter that goes with your construction or that bird card that meets your objective. It's a pretty big, big hit for me. Yeah, I'm with uh, Tim on this one, but I get your point there, Adam. I mean, I enjoy these games too. And I get that dopamine hit. I know we're not supposed to say that anymore, but <laughs> yeah, the dopamine hit when you get just the right card, like another game that comes to mind for me is Red Rising, where there's a bunch of cards where if you match this one person with this one other person, but not this other person, then you get this like massive amount of points. And that's great. I Man, that's so exciting. But at the same time, there's always a bunch of these little unsexy point building scenarios like what Tim talked about that can get you to a victory. It's just not as exciting a victory. And the same thing, I think, with a lot of the deck building games as well. You mentioned Star Realms, which I can't believe you actually mentioned Star Realms in this context. Who mentioned Star Realms? But I, didn't, I love Star Realms. You mentioned Star Realms. I didn't mention Star didn't Realms. Didn't you? I didn't hear Star Realms. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I swear you tapes. said Star Realms. Check the tapes. Oh, okay. Never mind. It's like you beat my child. It's like... <laughs> no, no, man. Star Realms is great. I hear what you guys saying, but... I disagree. <laughs> Easy there, Tiger. <laughs> yeah, right. right. How do you like that? I don't know why I can get down with some terraforming Mars, and I don't know if it is just the familiarity. Some of these other games, Ark Nova was just, Tim, you've played it many more times. Does it, does it start to fall into place after repeated plays? Does it make a little more sense? Do you get a little a better idea of where to, which direction to go? I feel like sometimes I have no direction or I pick a direction and it's totally wrong. I never get to find anything that gets me yeah. to where I want to go. Yeah, for sure. I think just like terraforming Mars, it's like, you know, if you see the card that's, that gives you a benefit for having par- like whatever parasites or microbes or bacteria or whatever, you don't play that unless you've got other bacteria cards that have drawn, you know, that have come up to play with it, right? So in, in um, Arc Nova, you get a card that has three monkey tags in order to play it. You just discard it unless you get more monkey monkey tags but every once in a while you get that hand that has four monkey tags in it and that monkey card and you're like this is awesome you just have to decide that that's chaff you're just going to discard it is there a hand limit size in arc nova there is yeah well it's at the end of the break right you can play with a lot but then you have to discard down but the cool thing about arc nova too is that there's a lot of opportunities to mill which i know is what you said you don't like it's not hey i just drew two cards and that's all i get to play with it's like draw three and discard one or draw two and discard one. So you actually want some chaff in your hand because otherwise you feel bad about getting rid of stuff that you wanted to play later. So to me, it's not bad. But again, I, I, I get your feeling with it. I mean, even the first game I told you with Arc Nova, I, I played a card at the beginning, one of the um, sponsorship cards that was like, get a point for every monkey you play or primate. And I never played a primate the rest of the game. Well, that was a wasted turn. But right. every subsequent play, I've kind of thought like, well, if I don't have something that matches with it, then that's just chaff. I'm just going to discard that one. I don't worry about it. You know, so it's um, to me, it's fun. I like the puzzle of it. So fair enough. All right. Well, let me jump into the first of the two mechanisms here that I'm going to mention that I still have some disdain for occasionally, but neither of these I dislike quite as much as negotiation. The first is set collection. Now, set collection can be used in a lot of different ways. And when I'm talking about set collection, I'm generally talking about a situation where you're going to get a benefit for having a matching set of cards or potentially a benefit for having cards that don't match. In other words, different cards, right? Um, so I'll give a couple examples here. My the, Probably that my strongest dislike is a game like uh, Ethnos. Now, I'll use another example that's very similar to Ethnos, and that's Ticket to Ride, because a lot of people know Ticket to Ride. In both of these games, on your turn, basically all you're doing is drawing to try to find sets of cards. So Ticket to Ride, you either draw two cards off the top of the deck or you pick up a wild. Ethnos was kind of the same way. I think it's like draw two cards and discard one or something like that. I can't can't remember. It's it's either draw two cards or you play cards. But um, I, I thought the first couple times I played Ethnos that it was a really cool concept. The idea that you're either trying to get these specific sets of a, of a type of uh, race of, of um, fantasy creature, which will give you an extra benefit, 
or if you can play a set, then you get like an area control marker in the board. The, the problem with Ethnos after playing it like half a dozen times is that the best way to win every time is just collect the largest set that you can have. Collect six of something. So the whole game is about just draw, draw two cards off the top of the deck. Back around to me, draw two cards off the top of the deck. Okay, so that's an example of set collection where the whole goal is to, to get large sets. And that's not fun. You know, the, the fact that there's not really multiple paths to strategy in that game once you get to know it. Really, the only path to strategy is to get the biggest sets. Uh, so that's why I don't like Ethnos. I don't like Ticket to Ride because just the action of collecting those sets isn't fun. But I'm going to give you an, an example um, that is a little bit more subtle. And that is where there's, there's a lot of games where set collection is part of the end game scoring. Um, we talked about Wayfarers of the South Tigris a couple weeks ago, and Chris happened to mention that in his um, perspective that, that that wasn't something he liked about it. Now, I really liked Wayfarers, but that isn't a part that I particularly loved. And another game I'll mention is Champions of Midgard. So Champions of Midgard was one of the earlier hobby games I got introduced to. At the time, it was really fresh to me, and I still think Champions does some really cool things. It's a very tight worker placement. It's got some push your luck. But the thing that always bugged me about it is you get to the end of the game after working your way up, you know, defeating these monsters, and then there's a whole bunch of endgame points based on how many sets of yellow, red, and blue monsters you, you killed. And there's no thematic reason why you're going after red versus blue versus yellow. It's just kind of an, like, an abstract reason to push you to different areas of the board. So instead of just always going after the, the monster with the most money on it, sometimes you want to grab the monster that's blue because it'll help complete a set. And that just bugged me thematically, I think, and just feels kind of a lazy motivation. So that's kind of the, you know, aside from a, a game that's just driven by their set collection, which which isn't that fun, games that use set collection as a motivator is not my favorite. Yeah, I got to completely agree with you again on that one, Tim. And I think you hit it right on the head when you talk about the thematic aspect of it. Because, I mean, for one, yes, it's boring. It's not interesting doing set collection, period. But it almost offends my sensibility of theme. Because one of the things that's most exciting to me is when the mechanics of a game play nicely into the theme of the game. And there's almost no scenario I can think of where set collection has anything to do with the theme of anything. I mean, like you said, red, blue, and gold monsters? What the hell does that mean? And why Why do I care? Why do I get, why is my life better if I kill three different kinds of monsters instead of, I mean, if I'm a Viking, it doesn't matter to me. Like, so anyway, it just, it, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense to me, and I don't get why that gets introduced. Find something better. I want to look at a game, a couple games like Arc Nova and Terraforming Mars, and there's certain cards that combo together, and you know they combo together, and they're going to skyrocket your points if you get those cards in unison. Isn't that just set collection in disguise? It is, it is, Adam, but I do think that in those cases, it is a little bit more thematic, right? Like the rare cases, like let's say the microbe cards, you know, most of the time they're about building up microbes, but the Jovian tags is a great example. That's probably the heaviest element of set collection in Terraforming Mars, but usually the card that's going to get you a benefit for having Jovian tags has some, some thematic reason for being heavily Jupiter fo focused. And, and it's used in a middle way. In fact, I've got another great example. I've got a couple games that I actually don't mind set collection in, but here's one where I think it thematically works. And that's Seven Wonders. So Seven Wonders, of course, is a card drafting game. And most of your points are gonna come from, you're gonna create resources and then you're gonna trade those, spend those resources to build up buildings in your city, build your wonder, things like that. But there's the green cards in the game are all about set collection. Those are supposed to be science cards. And one thing is that it's just a very small element of the game, kind of like Terraforming Mars. So it's kind of fun to have just one little different path to go down. And that's one way they could add it in simply. But in Seven Wonders, I think thematically it actually makes sense because, hey, if I build up the wheel, that's a type of technology. If I can advance that, if I can build up more of that types of technology, I'm becoming the best wheel builder there is. And so I get points for doing that thing with my civilization really well. I can also get some points for having sets of different types of technologies. It's showing that I'm diversifying as a culture and, and doing that. So I think in that case, it does make some sense and, and it feels like it fits well. Two other games that I thought set collection works really well in for some of the same reasons, and that's Ra and Seven Wonders. And these are because they're both 
light games with a whole bunch of different ways to score. And so it's it's fun to just be kind of driven to have different motivators to pick stuff up. And if you're trying to do it with a light rule set, thematically they don't really necessarily make sense, but it works there because the set collection is small. You're trying to collect a set of two tempura or a set of three sashimi. You know, it's it's small things, but they're just one small part of all the different scoring you're trying to do there. So in those cases, I think it works okay. And Terraforming Mars, I think it works okay as well. So Wayfarers, again, going back to that one, which again, I, I raved about the game. I had a lot of fun with it, but the fact that most of your in-game points, or a lot of them, come from just trying to get as many Vista tags as you can, or as many Ocean tags as you can. You know, that, I thought, was a little less fun. And I think that could have been done in a more interesting way, the endgame scoring on that. So, actually, let me transition directly into another mechanism that I have a lot of the same feels about. And that is my second least favorite mechanism, which is Pick Up and Deliver probably the most descriptive name of any of the things that we're going to talk about today. Basically, players are required at some point to pick up an item from one location and deliver it to another. Usually you get some benefit out of that. This is uh, one that shows up in several games. And interestingly, a couple of them are actually games that I'm going to give you as an example that I like. One game that it's prominent in is Merchants of the Dark Road. That is not one of the ones I liked, but it was one where I felt that this was uh, this unpleasant mechanism was used unpleasantly. My Little Scythe is another one where you move gems and apples around the kingdom trying to get them to the castle. It's a lightweight game and a simple mechanism like pick up and deliver is actually useful there because this is something that's family weight and it's a relatively small part of the game so I found it kind of acceptable there. And then at least to me the most internally controversial example of this is pretty much anything in the Clank series, which I love. I love the Clank series. But in the Clank series, it's not a series of picking up things and a series of delivering things. There is one big goal, which is you get all the way into the, the dungeon or the ship, or depending on which game you're playing in the series, picking up this one thing and getting it back to the other end of the ship or the dungeon or whatever. So... One of the things that I dislike about this mechanism is that, like some of these others we've talked about, I just find it uninteresting. Unlike trick-taking and set collection, it's tougher to make pick up and deliver a minor part of the game. At least it feels to me like in a lot of these games, it ends up taking over. It ends up making it a very linear type of game where you're trying to do this one thing over and over again. And I don't find that that interesting, which is why something like My Little Scythe, where it's a lightweight game meant for younger players and there are multiple other things happening around the board, I think it works. Or in the Clank series, where there's one big pickup and deliver and there's so many other things happening, it gets diluted out. But those are the exceptions. I think that other than that, it's just something that I don't find interesting. I think it takes over the game, and I just don't enjoy it very much. A couple games that do pick up and deliver okay for me. I thought the games were pretty fun or had the potential to be really fun. One of them is Zia, Legend of a Drift System, which I've kind of played by myself like twice. It's a subsection of the game, so it's a, a very sandboxy game. You're flying around in space. As one of your side project missions, you can pick up some stuff from this planet and deliver it to this other planet across the galaxy. But as you're flying from here to there, you can do a bunch of stuff along the way to pick up more points. You can stop at this planet and then talk to this guy and get some points. You can go over here and take out this merchant ship, grab some of his stuff. You can go to the shop. You can upgrade your ship. You can put on some of this. You can do all this different stuff along the way. Empires of the Void 2 also does this pretty well as part of a subsection of the game. So it's just these little side pieces where it's fun. Firefly was the one that originally came to mind. It's based on the IP, the Firefly IP. Again, more of a sandbox kind of type thing where you're building a crew, you're trying to accomplish this, accomplish that, and to build up some of your money, you can do this pick up and deliver piece. But yeah, as a main focus of the game, I don't know. It doesn't really doesn't really do much for me. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same. I'm the same, Chris. Like, if that's all the game is, is like, you know, move to this space, pick something up, and move to the other space. It just kind of it starts to feel like a chore. And we talked about that in our Merchants of the Dark Road review. But I agree. I think it can be a clever part of some other games. It, you know, Red Raven. You mentioned Empires of the Void too. But the other game that I've been playing recently is Now or Never which has a little bit of an element to that. You've got these quest cards in your hand and 
it kind of motivates you to move to a part of the map while you're doing that you're doing other stuff anyway and when you get there you can drop something off and get some extra points for it and it's fun to have that little side quest but if that's all the game was with like okay move to that side drop something off get points then move to this other side drop something off get points if that's all the game was then that's a lot less fun so totally agree with you chris there's a game called Waste, Wasteland Delivery Service that always looked interesting. You know, it's a post-apocalyptic type of game, supposed to be a little bit of an engine builder, a little bit of an economy in it. And I, I've looked at it several times, but then every time I think about the idea, the chore of what that game is primarily is picking up goods somewhere and then delivering to another place, then it really doesn't sound very fun to me. So I've never bothered going through with that. So be interested to hear if any of our listeners have a pickup and deliver game that they really find the the experience where that's the primary part of the game is fun to them but i I don't see it i don't see that being something that's going to drive me to come back to a game my second most dislike whatever second most interesting controversial maniacal mechanism is where you if you spend the most or if you do the most of something and you end up winning the game you actually lose the game this is like the rainier Kinesia special and qe also does this high society does this there's a bunch of games that do this you're playing well throughout the game you you bid the most whoops you spent the most money and now you're disqualified from winning because you spent the most money, you spent two dollars more than that guy over there, so you lost. I don't know, it makes me like choke. It makes me like physically gag. I don't get it. I don't want to do this. I played QE one time, and the opening bid, I don't know, I bid like ten bucks, and some other guy bid like thirty thousand bucks. All right, so I guess we're we're going high. So now I'm bidding like forty thousand, fifty thousand bucks. I it's, I get it. It's player driven, and the players are deciding all the stakes here. It's just frustrating to me. I really don't like this mechanism. I, it seems like a joke. Ha ha ha. You spent the most money. Now you lose. Joke's on you. I don't like it. Probably my biggest experience or my most recent that I can think of was High Society, which you mentioned. And um, I enjoyed that game. But it's also a fun light game. It takes about five minutes or ten minutes to play through a hand, right? The I will say High Society was super enjoyable because it is. It's people just throwing, there's what, I don't know, 12, 15 cards in the deck. You get familiar with them all. You know yeah. what's out there. So that's an example of a game that does it well. You almost have, you can almost remember what everybody's bid because the hands are so small, it's so light, and then it's fantastic. Don't shake your head, Chris. Man, that game, that game put me into a stupor. Well, and if that's the game that does it really well, <laughs> don't think it was the game. <laughs> oh my goodness, that I rem, I remember like. I remember that game. You don't remember you that game remember at all. That game. all sure. I, no, I think I blocked it from my memory. And if that's that the wasn't good what version, blocked it from your memory. Wow. No, what, what I was going to say is that I enjoyed the game, but that part of it was still very frustrating to me. And I think I lost almost every game because I bid too high because I was trying not to get stuck with bad stuff early. So I was bidding high. It was very frustrating, but it was a light, fun game and I didn't mind. I don't particularly like that. All right. Well, I guess my least controversial mechanism. <laughs> um, anyway, it's on my list here. This, this one didn't have a specific name that I could find, but I'm, I'm going to call it Player Determined to Endgame. And first, I would just want to call out, there are a lot of games that I love. Some of my absolute favorite games use this mechanism, but it's not my favorite. Um, so I'm going to start with an example, a, a popular game we've talked about a couple times already, but that's Arc Nova, right? Arc Nova ends when one player's conservation tracker crosses over their appeal tracker. So the players dictate the end game. That's not so bad. Here's where the problem comes in with Arc Nova and, and some, many other games like it. The first time we played Ark Nova, it was like a four-hour game with three players. The only reason it was that long is because the players were a little slow at moving, you know, building up their engine, getting their stuff done. I mean, I was able to fill up my entire zoo in that first game. I never should have been able to do that. But it's just because we the, we weren't focusing enough on the conservation track. So you get to play better, that game shortens drastically. Like, that'll probably be an hour and a half game with four people that know how to play it. So that means that we got the we did not get the best experience out of the game because it let us determine how long the game was going to go. Terraforming Mars is another great example of this. I've played games of Terraforming Mars that just went on too long, and I love Terraforming Mars. But if the players aren't pushing the end game conditions because it's not beneficial to their strategy, it can just keep going and going. So I've played like a four, four and a half hour game of Terraforming Mars that really overstayed its welcome. Vice versa, you've got Underwater Cities, which feels a lot like Terraforming Mars in some ways, and it has a specific number of turns. It's predetermined. There's 10 rounds. Every round is three turns. 
and the game is always about the same length. The, the game tells you how long it's, it should play and you get to build up a certain size engine and it ends when it's supposed to end. And so personally, that's one of the reasons why I prefer a game that has a predetermined length versus a uh, player determined length. One other quick example, we played Dune Imperium tonight and it handles this in a nice way because it does let players determine the, the game end, but at least there is a cutoff. If you get to the 10th round and nobody's beat the game, it got to 10 points at that point, then it cuts off. Now, tonight's game still went too long, but at least there's a mechanism to put an end to it if things haven't finished by that point. Yeah, I, I get what you mean there. And it's tough because it really, how I feel about that mechanism so much depends on the particular game or the particular performance, any particular game that I'm playing. Like when I'm playing a game of terraforming and I have a couple more things I want to do and I can keep the game from ending man, that sure does feel good. But then when it feels like when it starts going too long, then it just doesn't feel that good anymore. But I, I mean, I get I get what you mean there. Now, would this not apply to pretty much any game where you cross a point threshold like Dune Imperium? Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. And But there's yeah. a lot of games that don't require that. I'll give you a couple more examples. Like Scythe is a great example where the problem here is that experienced players can push the game too fast for a less experienced player to feel like they got a satisfactory experience from it, right? If you've ever played Scythe, um, the game ends when somebody's met six scoring conditions, you put stars out. Now, the nice thing about Scythe is that someone can hit those six stars and other players could still win if they if they gain money in different ways or points in different ways. But I've definitely played games where somebody got to six stars and I felt like I had just barely started to do some of the things I wanted to do. And it just was kind of a letdown, right? I didn't know how many turns the time the thing was going to go so i was like yeah it's okay i can use this turn to build up an upgrade it'll help me on a future turn when i probably should have ignored some of the actions i was doing if i'd known how long the game was going to end anachrony is an interesting example that kind of solves this because it does have a player determined end game but it's got a minimum number of rounds so everybody knows that they're at least playing to five rounds and most of the time you're going to play six maybe seven but you know, players can kind of determine that it's going to end at six or seven if they use up all the capital city spaces. But there's also a max. If you get to the seventh round and you haven't used up all the capital city spaces, the game's over. So it's got a nice threshold on either side to stop that from not letting people play the, the full game, get the full experience out of it. I want to ask you about Beyond the Sun. I think this does it in a nice way. It has a nice balance. There isn't any kind of predetermined number of rounds. It has the four card, depending on the number of players, four cards out there. And once a certain number of objectives are met of those different cards, then the game ends. And it feels to me like that game just has a nice, quick pace. There's a tendency to fill up those scoring objectives quickly. And it, I don't think I've ever met a game of Beyond the Sun that went too long. I, I think Beyond the Sun, is a good, they did a good job with balancing that. But I, I remember the first game of that felt like it overstayed its welcome a little bit. But the game is just not that long anyway, so I don't think it's so bad. But I think that it has a similar problem, just not, not as drastic. One last reason I want to call out this particular mechanism is I tend to play a lot of solo games. If I buy a game and I add it to my collection, I expect to play it solo. Because, you know, sometimes I'm just Jones and I, hey, I want to get out this Euro game that I just picked up. Nobody's around tonight. Let me put it on the table. I'll play against the AI. And anytime that there's a game, and this is probably my biggest complaint about this mechanism, anytime there's a game where the players determine the end game, the way the solo bot is playing competitively is by rushing the end game. And that always just feels like I don't get the full experience of a game. And Arc Nova is a great example of this. Arc Nova, I like the game a lot, but it can overstay its welcome if nobody rushes the end game. In the solo game, the bot is just pushing that break you know, it's for, it's after the first seven turns, then six, then five, then four, then three, then two, and then the game's over. And so you barely have time to do anything on the last half of the game before a break happens. So you haven't gotten to use, you know, all the stuff that you've built up and you've prepped for, and it just feels unsatisfactory, the arc of the game. It's made me more efficient at it because I have to play more efficient to try to beat the game, but it's not necessarily fun. And again, I mentioned our Underwater Cities, which has a similar type of building something up, but it's predetermined. So that's nice. One last example I'm going to give here. I've been playing Viscounts of the West Kingdom, which I'll talk about probably next week. And then a lot of Paladins of the West Kingdom. So Paladins of the West Kingdom has a predetermined number of rounds. I think it's seven rounds. And that always feels like a satisfactory solo experience for me because 
you get to play you you know what your game is going to do i might lose at it sometimes the solo bot's going to play a little bit longer in a round but i always feel like i get that full game out of it now viscounts does it okay but it does have a player determined end game and there have definitely been some solo games of that where i'm playing through and i just don't feel like i like i don't know when it's going to end and it kind of abruptly comes to a halt before i was ready for it or before i planned for it i set myself up for a couple future turns and i never got to have those turns and so i prefer when it when it has that predetermined length hey tim i don't disagree with anything you said but i would posit that there is a subset here that games there's games like dune imperium where there is a clear benefit to pushing the ending so i mean if you're the first person to get across the 10 point threshold you're probably going to win. doesn't always happen that way, but when there's a point threshold like that, you know, there's a race to that finish line. And I think that that is a slightly better version. The less, be- less good version, I think, is one that's more like terraforming Mars. And I love that game. So this is not a, you know, saying that all these games are bad, but one where it really does not necessarily benefit you to be the one who closes it out. It's not like you're racing for a point there, you, you could be the person who's in last place and you may be the one who puts out the last thing that finishes terraforming the last ocean or what have you. And it really does become a matter of, you know, figuring out if you have more things you want to do and getting them done. A lot less likely to happen in a game like Dune Imperium because you don't want to go on too long if you've got, if you're capable of going past that 10 point threshold, whereas you don't necessarily have that same incentive to move it along in terraforming Mars in games like that. Yeah, that's a great point, Chris. And, and again, like every single one of the games I just mentioned here, I love all of these games. But I do think that sometimes the arc of the game works better when the, when the game is predetermined. So I'm going to jump into my number one most disliked mechanism. And here... Hated. Hate's a strong word. And unlike the others, I have no intention whatsoever of playing this type of game generally speaking this is not like trick taking or pick up and deliver where i'm going to tell you it's an okay thing i don't find it very enjoyable this is one that if you tell me this game has this mechanism i'm out 99 percent of the time and that is social deduction oh my goodness i truly dislike social deduction games So what does that mean? It's a game in which there's usually a secret identity and deducing your opponent's secret identity is key to winning the game. That knowledge has to be gained through some sort of social interaction. So it's not the kind of thing where you can just play by a set of rules and eliminate this option, eliminate this option, eliminate that option, and eventually you're going to get to the answer. This is one where you kind of have to read your opponents and you have to figure out what they're thinking what they're up to. Oh my goodness. One of my first introductions to gaming, Tim, I can remember this like it was yesterday, that me, you, another guy that we knew played a game of One Night Ultimate Werewolf. It almost put me off of gaming. Oh, it was horrible. And just a couple of other examples, Shamans, which I'll come back to because that's a rare exception. And then another one that I I saw on BGG listed as a social deduction game, but it's Love Letter, which is another game that I really don't like. But I wouldn't, it's maybe a variation on social deduction. But the truth is, I couldn't even get into a lot of descriptions of social deduction games because I avoid them like the freaking plague. Because I do not want to sit there and try to read my opponent's brain that feels too much like a party game. And generally, I just don't like party games. I want rule sets. I mean, that's kind of been the running theme of all this. I want rules that are hard and fast that I can stick to and make things happen the way I want to make them happen. I don't want to have to be dependent on what's going on in Adam's head or how good a liar Tim is, which he's not. But, (laughs) you know, I, I just don't want to do that. That is not a fun gaming experience for me. There's way too much messy human interaction in that. I want rules. I'm probably saying more about myself than I am about social deduction games in this commentary, but you know, hey, that's just that's just how it is. Chris, I am absolutely 100% on your side with this. Social deduction is, in general, just a huge, huge turnoff. I don't want to play any game 
where lying is a part of it. And maybe that's like with the negotiation thing too, Tim. I could see that being a turn. I don't want to have to like connive and backstab diplomacy. Ugh, I don't want to have to do that and promise one thing and then totally turn my back on someone and ha ha ha, I tricked you and now I'm the winner. That doesn't feel good to me at all. And anyone, I don't know, it's tough for me to want to hang out with people that want to do that. Yeah, shamans though, I want to come back to that. Chris, you said you were going to come back to that. So I want to hear what makes that stand out. It stands out for me too. I think because you don't have to lie and the cards kind of tell the story and you can kind of eyeball someone and look at them and see if they're going to sweat a little bit. But no one has to come out and say, I'm not, I'm not the bad guy. You know, you have to lie to anybody directly across the table. So yeah, very leery of these social deduction games. Really quick, the problem with shamans is that you do have to lie and you have to look someone across the table and I can't do it. The reason why shamans works is because you can still win regardless of that. You you can still play the game and win it because of that and I still have fun because of that. Um, but it has the same issues with other social deduction. And Chris is right. I am terrible at it. And I can, the sense, the, the second I draw that trader card and I know what I'm looking at, I just know my entire, like my facial structure changes. Like I freeze up. I don't, I then I feel like I'm acting strange when I'm trying not to act strange. And it doesn't matter what whether I'm the traitor or not. And somebody says, Tim's the traitor. I'm going to break into giggles. It doesn't like, it's just ridiculous. I just don't have a skill set that allows me to lie to somebody to their face. I can't do it. Here's the thing in shamans too. I never got the the shadow. What's the bad guy? The shadow card. The shadow. I never got yeah. the shadow card. In that you were game. acting like a shadow the whole time. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't get it. So, but I know the moment that I got that shadow card, I'd be like, oh, oh god, oh, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah. it, this just this sense of like dread would come over me, but I'd had fun with it because I know it's only like one round. It's just a subsection of the the bigger game, and I think that's a neat way the shamans handles that. Probably everybody in a session is going to get to be the shadow at least yeah. once, except for me. Yeah. And, and definitely, as much as I dislike social deduction, if you ever get a chance to play with Tim in a social deduction game, it is so much fun. <laughs> he turns into like a long tail cat in a room full of rocking chairs, and it's just like it is a crazy <laughs> thing to see. So, but you know, at Tim, you actually made a really good point, and I think you said it better than I could have to answer Adam's question. What makes shamans different? And I think it's the fact that you don't really have to lean into the social deduction. And I don't necessarily dislike the lying part. I mean, I don't think we're you know lying people that we, you know we lie to each other. I mean, it's a game, right? But it allows that part to be fun because it's not necessarily that consequential. I can be the shadow, I can be the the shamans, and I don't really need to get into the social deduction aspect of the game heavily in order to play it. It's light, it's fun, it's breezy. This is a rare situation, almost like the trick taking. I mean, this is it's funny because this is a game that I it it contains two of my least favorite game mechanisms. And yet I still really like this game. And I think for both of them, there's something about the light breezy way that they get thrown together that I just think makes it work. But it's really the exception in that case. Yeah, and there's there's a couple other social deduction games that I feel work well because they're so light and they're so mechanism focused. And, you know, you mentioned Love Letter. That's a great example. You don't enjoy that. I think that's a fun, light little game, but there's no, you're not reading other people at all. It's just kind of more about like, hey, what cards got played? I'll play the odds and guess what the other person has. Coup is another example like that. But there are plenty of social deduction games like One Night Ultimate Werewolf or the original werewolf game where, you know, it can just take one. I, I think Secret Hitler is supposed to be like this, too. I have no interest in playing that. But, you know, where it can just take one guy who's just like, oh, Tim's a traitor. And it doesn't matter whether I am or not. But somebody, want, you know, is just going to be a jerk off and, and just start pointing and yelling at, at somebody. And other people are going to believe them or the person's going to act defensive whether they are or not. And it's just ah, it's the whole experience is not fun at all. Um, one game that I did have a lot of fun with that was Social Deduction was Battlestar Galactica. Now, this is a long time ago that I played this. And um, 
I remember just having a really fun time. I think we were really into the IP, you know, into Battlestar Galactic at the time and the experience that there may be some Cylons at the beginning, but you don't know if there are. And then halfway through the game, people draw some more cards and you know that there's going to be some Cylons. You don't know who, though, and you don't know whether they were Cylons the whole time. And that was a really cool experience. But I could also but that game could also fail hard if five minutes into the game, someone gives it away because of a guilty look or because of a dumb action. And now you've got a three and a half or four hour game that you got to sit there and play through while one person is clearly out of the game because they were already identified. So I think that game has a lot of potential for failing hard because of the hidden traitor aspects of it, the, the social deduction aspects of it. My number one most despised mechanic, and there's no way around, I just, I despise it. I don't think I've seen a way that it's used in a fun sense that I enjoy it, that makes it interesting. I touched on it in Wayfarers. This is dice placement. More specifically, anything that involves having to mitigate a random dice roll. I don't want to spend time fidgeting around with my dice, trying to make it a a 6 into a 4. Just because I rolled a 6, now I have to change it into a 5, a 4, a 3 to make it do what I want it to do. That's not fun to me. I rolled a 6. Tim rolled exactly what he needed, a 2 and a 3. Now he can do everything he wants that turn. I rolled a six and a five. I have to spend actions so I can turn those six into five and it's something useful. It's just tedious. It's not fun. You, It's a random roll. One guy rolls this thing. A girl rolls something else. She gets to do the awesome stuff because she had a roll that happened to fit what's already in her tableau and available actions to her. I have to go spend time so I can use these dice and put them some places. I, it's just frustrating to me i don't want to do that it's so arbitrary there's no theme to it it doesn't make any sense i don't like it, it makes me sick i think i completely understand that adam and, and the reason why i think i don't mind dice placement or dice worker placement is that generally when they're doing it well what it's doing is it's essentially just an action selection mis- mechanism that's restricting what you can do castles of burgundy is a really good example where generally it works really well because a one through six they all have their own values. You know, when you roll a one, a two, a three, there are different spaces to pull tiles from. It may change which tiles you can pull, and that's the action selection piece of it, or it may change where you can put on your board. And that feels pretty even, but that can even still lead to some frustrating moments. You know, you can roll two sixes three times in a row. There's no sixes left on the board. Now all I'm doing is wasting my turns taking it and workers. So, you know, that's where even a game like that that should be fairly well balanced can be frustrating. And again, you mentioned Wayfarers, and I completely see your point of view on that one, because that's a game where the one and the six had some reasonable value and everything else was pretty useless until you found ways to mitigate it. And so I think that is a game that um, could definitely lead to moments of frustration. It did for you the night that we played it. I had a better experience with it, but I completely understand that. There's a game that I actually quite enjoy, Euphoria, Build a Better Stopia, and it's Jamie Stegmeier design. And this is a dice worker placement game. And one of the mechanisms about this game is that when you either place a dice or you take dice back. And when you take dice back, you roll all the dice that are in your pool. And if your dice, your your dice represent people and the pip number on them represents how intelligent they are. And if your people get too smart, then they leave you, they run away. So you can spend several turns building up resources to get another dice worker. And then you can have a bad roll, get two sixes, and now you've just lost one of your dice. And so that's a great example where the dice worker placement itself is is fascinating because depending on the pips you're rolling and using, you get different benefits. But when you lose a dice because of a bad dice roll, that's a similar type of experience of just not being able to do something with it at all. So completely understand that. I'm not going to argue it too much other than that. I have had some fun with it, but I also have been frustrated by those. Yeah, and I, I kind of agree with Tim. I've seen it done well, and I've enjoyed games like Euphoria. Actually, I remember that being one of the things that I found interesting about that game. Or Castles of Burgundy, similar situation. I feel pretty fine about it. I don't feel strongly one way or the other, but I support you in your hate. <laughs> that makes you feel better. No dice worker placement for Adam. Got it. Get it out. That will wrap up our conversation on controversial mechanisms if you have any feedback for us or uh, any any mechanisms that you want to add to our to the list let us know uh if you have some examples of the games that we mentioned tonight that uh you think we should try out because they, they do them better we're interested in that as well 
Before we wrap up today, got a couple listener reviews. First is uh, was left on March 27th by Bane Fury. I think Bane Fury is David Rodriguez from All Games New and Old. So David, if this is you, I appreciate it. But he said, fun and informative. I know you might be spe- skeptical. How can these guys do a review right after a play? How could they possibly have had time to form any deep thoughts about the game? Honestly, I don't know how they do it either, but they knock it out of the park every time. The insights these guys have is incredible and honestly unrivaled across the many board game podcasts I listen to. You may or may not agree with their opinions, but you'll understand exactly why they feel the way they do and come away with a better understanding of the game they're talking about than you did going in. They have a great rapport with each other, so even when they go into banter, it's a very enjoyable listen. It is easily, without doubt, one of the best board game podcasts out there. Thank you so much, Bane Fury. David, if that was if that was you, really appreciate it. That was really nice to hear. He said deep thoughts. He must be talking about you guys because I know all this stuff is just skimming the surface. <laughs> what, what a nice review. That was lovely to hear. That was great. Thank you so much. All right. And then we just had one more review that was left on Tuesday by DMAX51. Uh, the title is a great board game podcast. Board Game Hot Takes has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. I love the format of the show. A group of friends at the tail end of game day discussing the newest game to have hit their table. And you can tell that Tim, Chris, and Adam are conveying their earnest opinions. Even when they're hopelessly wrong, as they were about Root, for instance, <laughs> it's still fun to listen to the trio discuss our shared hobby. Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. And I knew I was going to upset some people with, about Root, but I appreciate you leaving a, a five-star review in any case. Frequently in error, rarely in doubt. <laughs> Frequent, frequently hopelessly wrong. That sounds about right for me, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, if you enjoy the show, we would love it if you would leave a review for us. It helps other people find the show. It tells us that people appreciate what we're doing. Uh, this was our, I don't know, 87th episode that we've recorded. Um, we have not missed a, a weekly podcast recording for around a year and a half got something exciting planned for our 100th episode so stick around for that um chris and adam don't even know what that is i've got something exciting planned i'll let the fill them in on that soon Uh, but we're getting there close just a couple more months and we'll be there until next time take care everybody good night all bye bye